Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I imagined you immediately wanted to get away <laughs> and go on an aeroplane somewhere <laughs> when you got home. No? Uh, so not the case. Do you know what? I've done very, very little since I, I last saw good. you, DH. It's so, it, you it deserve was really it. You've nice. been working so hard. Well, you too. You too. Go but ahead. not much happens, does it, in the, in the break? I mean, I've been scouring <laughs> not much. Everyone, it's like all the PR people as well and all the press people have given up as well and they kind of... They don't tweet, they don't, they don't speak, they don't write, <laughs> they never call. Here's the thing, DH. <laughs> exactly. It is the one time in the year that Formula One stops over Christmas. People are going in on Christmas Day to build the new car and things like that. So this two-week period is the only silence that we get from Formula One. So I was pretty silent, although, DH, did you see Alonso driving his Alpine Formula One car at Le Mans? prior to the start of the race last weekend. Oh, that was a lot. I, I assumed it was um, Ocon. But they were no, both there, okay. but Alonso driving it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's fantastic, isn't it? You know, actually, he couldn't keep going for 24 hours, though, I don't think. Not in that thing. <laughs> probably. Yeah. I really wanted to know what lap time he could do, so I was, like, willing him to go faster and faster, and then suddenly it became a sort of formation finish with all the other Alpines products and stuff. But awesome to see that still a great race isn't it i mean you know the oh, 24 to actually keep going the whole thing is people are in tears at the end just because they got to the end you know it was uh, yeah. they're so tired it's exhausting yeah. to watch but uh, i didn't watch all of it in time i'll be honest i couldn't stay i couldn't stay up all night. <laughs> just but there you go that's the motor racing we had recently that's that's been and gone and yeah. um, there was a little bit of f1 news oh hang on we ought to start the show Let, let's oh yes we haven't done the official welcome to everyone listening go on off you go off you go well welcome to the f1 nation podcast with me and tom clarkson yeah me damon hill and tom clarkson oh me damon hill i beg your pardon <laughs> So actually, there was a little bit of F1 news. Very sadly, no Japanese Grand Prix. That's true. This yeah, year. they. Yeah, and I was a bit surprised because they just managed to do an Olympic. So I don't see why they couldn't have um, squeezed out a Grand Prix at the end there. But um, you know, it's a serious business and disappointing. Yeah. You know, we're about to go to Spa, one of the great F1 tracks on the calendar. But Suzuka's right up there as well. And any Formula One calendar that doesn't have Suzuka in it. Yeah. I, I mean, I do think these things are it? integral to the challenge of the sport. I mean, it's not just about just driving a Formula One car at any circuit. It's about driving a Formula One car at these iconic tracks. And Spa, obviously, is right up there. It's one of the oldest circuits with Monza and Silverstone that's had the most Grand Prix held at it. So it, it was around before the war as a track. 1921 is when it was uh, founded, if that's the right word. Yeah. And then it was one of the founding races of the of the World Championship in the inaugural championship in 1950 as well. So, yeah, you're right. And I, I honestly think these tracks are what attracts, excuse the pun, um, people around the world to the sport. So, you know, you can have a race in far flung places and new circuits and that's great. But 
these are the things that have been, because they've been around for so long, they've got all this fantastic history we can refer back to. When we go back, we go, do you remember that race there? Do you remember this race? And we're going to be talking later, aren't we, to uh, someone, a very special person, very close person close to my heart, um, because... <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you know he's got he's got a very strong connection to Spa. He's had some great moments there, hasn't he? Well, so have you, Damon. Your second ever Grand Prix victory in '93 was there, wasn't it? And, my, and one of my first victories in Formula Three as well. I, I think I won at Zandvoort and then I won at Spa as well. And so, in fact, I won both the F3 races that were overseas uh, in the British Formula Three Championship. And it's one of those tracks you just go out and you literally. You leave the pits, you just run down that hill to Eau Rouge and the rest of it is just a just an absolute blast. I mean, it's just so huge that you're so used to being confined in these sort of slightly smaller tracks that you get to a place like that. And it's a bit like letting the Labrador out after being, you know, off the leash. You know, you get you get the sense you can run and the car can run and it can really fly along the straights and it's such a spectacular thing. And then you've got the scenery as well and the chips. And the mayonnaise. I went there. I went to Spa on a motorbike to see the motorbike Grand Prix in about 1980. And I've got a picture of me over the bus stop chicane asleep on the gravel in my leathers <laughs> because I was so tired. We'd ridden all night to get there and I couldn't stay awake anymore. And I lay down literally on gravel and people are walking past me. <laughs> so some strong memories That's amazing. Uh, there, up there in the pines. Yeah. How intimidating is Eau Rouge? Yes, it's been eased over the years, but as you're coming down the hill, you're banging through the gears, you hit eighth gear, and do you still have to sight yourself up for it, even now? They're a little bit quicker than when we were doing it, but they've got tons more downfalls. So they've actually, Eau Rouge has become increasingly easier to take flat over the years, but it doesn't mean it's a, an easy corner. I mean, you, you know, if it goes wrong, it's catastrophic. You can see they have to concentrate. And some of the passes we've seen, I mean, an absolutely phenomenal pass down to uh, the first part of Eau Rouge with, with Mark Webber and Fernando Alonso. I mean, that's some of the most spectacular, brave moves uh, between people who respect each other. If they're not silly, you can get these amazing moves. Uh, so it's, it's awe-inspiring is in the real sense, not in the kind of rather overused sort of colloquial sense now. We talk about Eau Rouge Radion, we talk about Blanchiment, but what is the hardest corner on the lap? When you're looking at the data ahead of qualifying, thinking, where can I eke out more time? Are you looking at those corners or is, is it elsewhere? I mean, it is actually probably elsewhere now. I mean, you know, the, the, the faster corners, typically because they are fast, the amount of time in the corners is less. <laughs> it sounds it sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But actually, you think about it. If you get to the hairpin, it seems like you're there forever. And you are, relatively. You know, it takes forever to get from the point where you start braking to the time you've actually left the corner. So there's a whole lot of time you could make up in slower corners. And that is where the, uh, some of the driver skill actually comes in, is sneaking little tiny bits of time. And when you looked at speed traces with people like... Alan Prost or, or Ayrton Senna, you could see on the entry, they kind of nick a bit of time out of the, the deceleration into the apex of a slow corner. And you go, wow, that's two tenths. Wow. Blimey. What, because they're braking later? or Coming off the brakes sometimes, sort of modulating the brakes as they go in. So they're braking hard and then they're slightly coming off it and then getting the car to the apex. Whereas there are definitely corners like Pouhon, which is... Uh, the downhill long left-hander at Spa, which which gets your attention. I mean, in, when I was racing, it wasn't easy flat at all. It wasn't flat at all. Um, so, you know, it was a really 
fast entry. And you always kept thinking, if I can just nail this one, I, there's tons of time. But actually, when you come out of the Pujon, there's only a very short um, bit of straight. So you don't get the massive gain. Of course, where you do get the massive gain is coming over the top of Eau Rouge. If you get that wrong, if you have to lift there, you are losing tons of time all the way up the hill. So some some places where you can gain in the fast, but mostly it's the, it's the medium and the combination corners as well. You have to get that flow right because... If you go in too deep in the first part of some of those lacoon bits and stuff, you get out of sync. It's like you suddenly now you're too far right when you should be left. And it's a difficult balance to kind of start to thread it um, in the right way through those sections. But so satisfying. What a great track. Great track. Longest track on the calendar. It's half a mile longer than Jeddah, which is the second longest this season. Yeah. So you get a real sense that you're going somewhere, don't you? You do, and you are. And you get to the top of the hill on the way down from the corner with no name, and you can look back and you can see where you've come from. You can see the paddock uh, there on the distance in the horizon. So well, we don't get a horizon there because we've got so many trees and mountains. But anyway, yeah. Any radio problems when you're at the far end? Yeah, yeah. Well, on the old days, we, we didn't have strong enough radios. They're probably better now than they, they were. Yeah. Well, look, who's it going to be? Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen? Tom, we've seen a swing. We have definitely seen a swing back towards Mercedes. And that was started at Silverstone, wasn't it? And then Hungary. I, I really didn't think that Lewis would, would get the edge of, of Max on Hungary. But uh, what, a, what an amazing race that was, too, uh, for all different reasons. And, of course, we've, we've since learned, because we last spoke, didn't we, after Hungary? But now um, it's stuck so that uh, the Aston Martin, Sebastian Vettel's car was... Um, was found not to have enough gas in it and they couldn't find any more even though they tried um so got more points for um for lewis yeah he went he was promoted from third to second as a result of that interesting that he's only won one of the last seven races isn't it i can't that's are we talking about the same guy here lewis yeah. hamilton has only won one yeah. of the last seven Shocking. races and that was silverstone yeah. of course where him and max had their collision yeah I am already holding my breath for the opening lap of this weekend's Belgian Grand Prix. Can you imagine for a second that they're one and two on the grid, which is highly feasible, mm -hmm. going down the hill towards Eau Rouge side by side? No, listen, you, you've got to be very careful. You don't wind this up, Tom, because you know what happened last time in your press conference and you, you wound this up. Into, <laughs> you were trying to make some, <laughs> you're trying to stir up some sort of rivalry here. And uh, you'll be blamed. If anything happens, people go, it's Tom's fault. Um, you know, they will, absolutely. Max will, definitely. But I'm not trying to stir anything up other than, Damon, can you imagine that? I'm side by side into Eau Rouge. You just talked about that 2012 overtake of Mark Webber on Fernando Alonso. But, oh, I mean, that run up to Les Combes as well. If, if they make it through Eau Rouge together, it's... And it's another fast circuit like Silverstone. I mean, we, they've already shown they're not afraid to tangle at high speed. But Spa's another whole other level of, uh, of risk. And so, yeah, it's a concern. I mean, I think if I was uh, Michael Massey uh, and I'd be, you know, the, the driver's briefing before the weekend, I would be saying, listen, guys, respect this place. It's the fastest, we, one of the fastest tracks we go to. We do not want to have any nasty episodes. And of course, we have had uh, some nasty episodes um, not so long ago in um, the F2 races. You know, there's, there is a the extra risk, especially if it's wet, They've had their plenty of um, issues recently with the rains, but um, wet races at Spa are not of the faint-hearted. If you're Christian Horner, 
I think you need to sit down with Max Verstappen and say, we really need a clean weekend because he's been involved in lap one crashes at the last two races. He's lost a massive chunk of points and second place at Spa behind Lewis Hamilton is a great result, actually. Yeah, but it's, it's not, is it, Tom? Because it means that the, the title's slipping away. Yeah, so he will not be looking at this weekend and thinking, I need to score points. He will be looking at this weekend and saying, I need to win again. I need to make sure Lewis doesn't win. That's the only way he's going to become world champion this year. So it's high pressure. And G'd on by the thousands of Dutch fans, the wall, as I describe it, going up the hill to Lecom is going to be orange. It, it has been ever since Max has been in Formula One. And that, I don't know, could that cloud his judgment a little bit? Yeah. Well, I don't know. That they have a limit on the, on, the, on the crowd, I believe, because of COVID still. So, But you're right. Yeah. If some of the Belgian fans haven't already adopted Max as well uh, as one of their own, but the, the Dutch are not far to travel. So, yeah, it, he, it, and we, we hope that we don't get this, you know, repeat of the booing that happened with Lewis because of the massive support that, that Max takes with him everywhere he goes. You know, it's very easy for, for them to kind of um, jeer and stuff. And, and, and I saw that Jan Lammers has a, appealed to the crowd and the supporters in Holland to, to give Lewis a, a good welcome. Jan Lammers, the managing director of Zandvoort these days. But So you say Max is going to be going for the win. Do you think Hamilton, with all his experience, would more willingly accept second place behind Max with the championship view got a little bit of a margin hasn't he and he knows it's going to be it, it it's ebbed and flowed throughout the year you have to look at your situation as it arises and and do that calculation sometimes i can imagine lewis thinking it'll be too risky you know to put myself in a position where if i am second that passing max might now be a little bit too too risky um so yeah i can imagine that him he might go for a second place if he absolutely had to. But we are right to expect there's going to be an absolutely blinding race between these two, between now and the end of the season. Well, let's hope you're right, DH. Um, and we've got another voice coming to join us now. Uh, you touched on it a moment ago. Go on, <laughs> DH. <laughs> who, who is it? Who's the man with us today? It's your man, Eddie Jordan. Your former <laughs> boss. You're good man. He's... Well, well, you say boss. I don't know who was in charge. Actually, we can ask him when he comes in. <laughs> Eddie's coming live from uh, a secret spot in the in the med somewhere. Is that right? I think he is. Let's let him in. There he is. Hello, Eddie. <laughs> That's me. You're looking well. You're looking fit, Eddie. It's great to have you on the F1 Nation podcast. There's various things we want to talk to you about, Eddie, but can we wind it right back, first of all? When did you, Eddie Jordan, first become aware of Damon Hill? Oh, um... I had to bring myself to his attention. He was not exactly looking for me. Were you, Eddie? That's not true, Damon. Actually, he was a very nice guy, a friend of mine called Il Phillips, Phillips, who came to work for Jordan for a very long time. And he was friendly with a guy called Alan Henry. And Alan Henry... Uh, like so many of these people in Formula 3, 
uh, he was working for Motoring News and he just went on and on about this Damon Hill guy and I said, forget about it. He's too old. Uh, he has no money. Uh, I don't care what talent he's got, but he's of absolutely no use to me. And he, he bludgeoned me into giving him a free drive, free, mind the word, or maybe not free, no, almost free, almost free drive in Donington. Is this true, Damon? This is not true. I paid. I paid, Eddie. You know I paid. I paid good Everybody money. Pays. <laughs> I, Everybody pays. Everybody pays. I scraped together all my little shekels and I paid you <laughs> and I got, I got 20 laps in a, a free car. So those were your first laps in Formula 3, Damon? They were. and yes. I, uh, Yeah, they were fa- it was fantastic. Eddie Jordan was, uh, you know, it was, the, it was one of the top teams then and uh, it was a great opportunity. So I, at least I got that opportunity. Uh, he knew of me, but he was, he was right to say I had no money well, apart from the two grand I paid him. Also, I, I was too old. You know, I mean, looking down the list of drivers, I was getting on a bit. And in fact, uh, Ken Tyrrell told me exactly the same thing. So uh, you're not alone, Eddie. Well, actually, before that, the first time, you know, we were all huge fans of Ayrton Senna. And the very first time that Ayrton drove a car, Formula 3 car, was at Silverstone in a Jordan car. So we had that kind of ability. I, I was one of the only teams, I think, who actually went out to try and find some talent. I would try and find a sponsorship because drivers themselves... And very soon after you, Johnny Herbert came. These guys didn't have money, but I felt the only way that I could get success was by having a top driver. So therefore, I would try and find... Now, Dickie Bennett was the absolute legend and he was the benchmark, but drivers and sponsorships always went to him, whereas uh, I felt I had to go out and find a driver. And that's why I I, I was very happy to give you a driver because I could see something. I saw something in Senna, I don't know why. Um, And I'm not sure I could ever say I saw anything in Michael Schumacher except the money from Mercedes, if I was absolutely honest, because that's how he got the drive. But you were not in that category, Damon, believe me. I wasn't, no. So, Eddie, let's talk about talent in Formula One. It is 30 years since you gave Michael Schumacher his Formula One debut at Spa. How soon that weekend did you realise you had someone very special on your hands? Ian Phillips is the man who recalls this better than anybody. Because when we arrived at Spa, we were confronted by eight members of the bailiff society who are policemen. And uh, they confiscated the truck. They locked it up um, until we paid what somebody had decreed that we owed them the money. Um, And I can't believe why they would probably do something like that. But that's what they did. And um, so what people don't realize is that Michael didn't actually get much of any running on the Friday whatsoever. So I didn't have a clue how good he was until almost qualifying. And he had to deliberately lie to me. And to be very fair, that was the way Michael was. I asked him straight up, as if I would any other driver, Damon included, if you said to Damon, Damon, have you been to Brands Hatch? Well, you obviously know what you're saying. Have you been to Brands Hatch? Of course you've been to Brands Hatch. But that was a question of, have you raced at Brands Hatch before? So when I asked him, had he been to Spa before? He said, yes, but he hadn't raced there. So he misled me. So possibly the way I said it or something like that. So when he qualified seventh or whatever it was at the first time in first year of a, a, a rookie team, um, I mean, that was quite sensational. But we also had Andrea de Cesaris, who for me was really a talented driver. He, yes, he used to crash a lot, but not with me. Not with me. He was a fantastic guy. And I, I, the reason I hired him was because I was so familiar with him from his Formula 3 days with Tigo, with Tim Schenken and people like Howden Ganley. I'd have to say that the days of Michael, he was there. 
purely because he had money from Mercedes and um, Jordan were desperate, desperate for money at the time. And that's why he got to drive. He'd done some Group C with Mercedes, hadn't he, at Spa? I'm sorry, I just thought I'd seen him. I, and I don't think he ever was at Spa, but, but right. that's what he told me anyway. Thanks. Ironically, in that Group C, if you remember, Damon, Frenzen uh, was always quicker than him and Wendlinger almost as well. So he was not a standout quality in that sports car. There were three very good drivers in that car at the time. And that's why it was run by Sauber. So it was Sauber who paid me, but the money came from Mercedes. I mean, some people try to deny that now, but that's actually the facts. But he'd had a, he'd had a test, hadn't he, at Silverstone in your car? He had a test on the Wednesday. When Casho, the results of the court case came out on the Monday, and then I realised that, hey, we're in serious trouble here. Uh, we have to have a driver for the weekend because the rules are very clear in Formula One. You can't ever provide for an exemption or force majeure or anything like that. The cars have to run. It's part of the, uh, the rules and the regulations of being in the championship. And as a result of that, uh, I had a choice. I'd either Stefan Johansson, who had been ex-teammate of mine way back in the 70s in the Marlborough Formula 3 team, and he's an extremely good guy, so he would have been perfect, but he wasn't going to spend any money driving my car in Spa. So the alternative was... Gerd Kramer, who was then the head of allocating posh cars to people like Damon and other people like that at a discount from Mercedes, he, he bludgeoned me into putting this Michael Schumacher in the car and he said he'd find some money to make it happen. And that's what happened. I've never heard of that man before in my life, Eddie. So don't, don't sorry, I didn't get my discounted Mercedes. <laughs> well, I did. You must have been the only odd one out. But then you were always a Renault man, weren't you? What you did there with your car is now part of motorsport legend, isn't it? You know, Michael's first run, he, I can remember being in the paddock because I think it was a Form 3 race support race or 3000 race or something like that. And I can remember hearing the tannoy and they're going, you know, like Michael Schumacher is now fourth or something. I can't remember how quick he was. He was ridiculous. I mean, it was, it must've been a shock, huge shock. And, and you know, Damon, you've won there. So, uh, you know, of all great drivers will always come back to great circuits and they always drive great cars. It's a, it's a fact of life. I don't know how that works out, but that's what happens. So I believe great drivers love Spa because it's such a great challenge. It's fast, there's hard braking, there's tight corners, and there's some very, very fast sweeps. And to really get it right, you need to be absolutely on top of your game. For me, I think it's a great test. It really is a great test. Hmm. So he qualifies seventh, seven-tenths of a second faster than De Cesaris. He then burns the clutch out on the grid and doesn't complete lap one. What is the last thing Michael says to you before leaving the track on the Sunday, Eddie? I said, we're testing on Tuesday or whatever it was. And uh, he said, he'd see us there. That was the start of the shenanigans. And do I blame Bernie Eccleston? No, he, he didn't. Bernie didn't think that I was going to make it to the end of the season. He thought I was like most startup teams and bit dodgy character he thought maybe that I wouldn't survive so he he realized that at Spa there were 20,000 people over and above what the average crowd would be at Spa and that was because Michael became came from Germany they hadn't been a racing driver apart from Winkelhock for a very long time from Germany and he realized that this is a country that was starved of a star in Formula One and if he could capture a really good German driver it would greatly increase revenues, the income stream and the turnover, the footfall of Formula One. And, and, you know, he said, I have to find a decent team to put him in. It was easy to uh, chop out Moreno and stick him in. Or that was the plan until we went to the court in Milan uh, on behalf of Moreno. 
stating that we got an injunction to make sure that Moreno had a seat at Benetton. So we thought we'd stopped it in that way. But that was great because once we had the injunction, we were able to, uh, if you like, put the gun to uh, Briatore's head rather than he putting it to everyone else's head. Eddie, just to fill in for the, for the sake or the benefit of our younger listeners, what happened was because he was so spectacular, there was a sudden rush to get control of Mike, wasn't it? And, and you had Benetton wanted him and they wanted it. And you suddenly had this amazing talent in your car, but you suddenly found yourself in a situation where you couldn't keep him in your car. Uh, as you just explained. Yeah, Damon, it's no secret. It was simple. I didn't want to be a bankrupt hero. And this was like what this was happening right in front of my eyes. Yes, yeah, sure, you had a great talent. But when you have to feed people and staff uh, and suppliers uh, and your family, they come first. I don't care how great or how big the racing driver is. And some people, some people lose the run of themselves when they think about a plan and a strategy uh, of, of any business. And this was a business transaction. I had a commodity that if I worked it well, he could stay with me. And if I worked it even better, I could sell him and make some money to get to the end of the season. And then I would worry about getting through the, that winter period in a different way. But that's the way it happened. Bernie underpinned certain monies. Uh, Flavio paid us, not a lot, but then Willie Weber had to pay us because his contract was quite substantial. So. You know, we had a couple of different ways of gathering money as a result of it. I was never happy because I didn't really want to lose Michael. But at the end of the day, what we did was we had an injunction. At that time, it was PK and Moreno in the Benetton car. We had a situation where, as you well know, Tom Walkinshaw, he wanted Brundle in the car. And Flavio didn't want Brundle in the car. They wound up with Moreno because he had some money. They kept PK because, you know, three times world champion or whatever. So that was a big thing for them. So the person who was going to be disposed of was Moreno. So we we went to Moreno because Moreno won the Formula 3000 championship, I think, the year before with Gary Anderson. Gary was the guy who designed my car. And as you well know, he was there, part of the Jordan group of people who designed that car. So Gary and me went to Moreno and we decided to represent Moreno in the court in Italy. And that was the absolute crunch because to get the judge to give us an injunction or to give Moreno the injunction that he had to have a seat gave us the power to negotiate. So it was a bit of, it was a bit of manipulating. But that's, that's, I mean, Eddie, you're a you are a genius. Oh, thank you, Damien. You've never said that before. <laughs> you know, but you, you know, you see the opportunity. You had a real head for wheeling and dealing, didn't you? I mean, you know, you just said that uh, Bernie thought you wouldn't last, but you did last. And you're speaking to us now from your yacht in the Mediterranean. <laughs> so it's, I think you've done it. You've done it very well. But I mean, it is, it is the other side of the business, isn't it? That yeah. Well, it is the business end of Formula One, which I think... Uh, you know, some people just don't quite appreciate how much action. Well, we did. We've we've got some uh, good series on the, on Netflix that are showing that, but we like to talk about it as well. You know, about the the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, and I can remember all those guys you mentioned, Flavio and Tom Walkinshaw and everybody in Bernie and everyone's running up and down the paddock and Tom was there too. So you, you were you there, Tom? Uh, wasn't there in ninety one? No, a bit just, before your just time. Just before, before your yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Eddie, at what point in the negotiations did your mentality swap from I want to keep Michael Schumacher in my car to he is my cash cow. I've got to get as much as possible for this transaction. At the Villa Deste on the night before the start of the weekend, 
Bernie summoned myself. I brought in Phillips for moral and also other support because he was very good to me and for me in the team. Then there was Walkinshaw and Briatore. Uh, I didn't want to be in the room with Walkinshaw, so I needed Bernie for whatever reason. So he was dismissed. So there was Briatore, myself, and um, Bernie. And I, I distinctly remember Philip saying to me, he said, you know, it's now one o'clock. What's happening? So we wound up staying in the Villa d'Este. In Phillips and I shared a single bed in the Villa d'Este, one of the greatest hotels on this planet. And we stayed there until such time as we got the deal and got the money off the table. And because it went, they weren't going anywhere, we had the injunction, if you like. I had the gun and in the gun were the bullets that I could pull. They weren't fake bullets. They were real bullets. That was the injunction I had in my hand. So if you like, I had the upper hand on Bernie. He had to pay. Go on. How much? How, how much? How much? I'm not telling. I couldn't possibly tell you that. But I've survived, as Damon has already said, <laughs> enough to get me through the season. I made it that each person was paying something, but never let on to each person how much they had to pay. Eddie, my <laughs> guess is it's about as much as 20,000 tickets uh, for, for Spa, something like that, and times times all the other races. <laughs> times all the other races multiplied by a bit of interest and a bit of uh, whatever. <laughs> anyway, look, it doesn't matter. It's folklore. But, you know, it was one of the classic moves that Phillips, and we still laugh and howl about it because... Some of the things that happened, I remember they wouldn't feed us. And uh, Bernie sent us up some sandwiches to the room while we were pretending to be there negotiating. But we were doing absolutely nothing of the kind. We had said, this is the money. I have the injunction. Let them all get stuffed. And that's exactly what happened. They just had to give in. Great images. That's a great <laughs> story. Well, let's fast forward seven years now to Spa 1998. Damon's last victory in Formula One. Eddie, your first victory. It's a Jordan 1-2, one of the most bonkers races in the history of the sport. And Damon Hill wins in Belgium. Fantastic. Well, what an, an unbelievable race. Damon Hill back at the top. Guys, how do you reflect on it now? I'm glad we're glad we got it done. <laughs> it was a bit of a weekend, wasn't it, Eddie? I mean, it, it was a spectacular event that started. You qualified third. Uh, you fluffed the first start. It was a miracle. Made a brilliant start the second time round. That was the crunch. I think that start was so important for you, Damon, because to lead into the first corner, there was then mayhem again, not quite to the same level. Uh, and then you just drove brilliantly, to be fair. And then Ralph got himself going towards the end and that's why we had that discussion on the pit wall and uh, of course there was Alessi there who was making inroads but he wasn't really making inroads we were always going to be one two anyway if the car stepped going and then and Ralph behaving himself and not coming up to try and pass you or whatever because you'd made that very clear as to what you thought would happen which was absolutely right did I give you value for money Eddie that's all I want to know uh, I would never admit to that because that would be going against every single fibre of my body. But uh, you sign me up. You sign me up. Why well, you didn't want to sign me up anyway? But I got signed up for your team, and it was. Hang on, hang on, Damon. What do you mean by well, that? Well, it was kind of. I never wanted. He him. never wanted me. You know, I want. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Hang on. Who did you want for ninety eight then? Eddie? I have no idea, but I didn't want to give someone eight million quid for nothing. That's what. I How much? 
have you got a bad memory or something? Was that all? I paid you 16 million for two years. Jesus, what's I out of my mind? I didn't get all the money then. Where did the rest go then? <laughs> <laughs> but basically, it was, I think that Benson Hedges were quite keen to have me. So I kind of. No, 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 no it, it, it was an ultimatum. Nigel Nortridge, and I, I, I stand by his great judgment because, to be very honest, Damon, on reflection, all these years have passed. You brought something to Jordan that they never had before. You were wily, you were experienced, you were a world champion, and you brought that style to us. I don't believe we could have won that race in Spa without you. I'm certain of it. There, I mean, there is, there is, it has been told quite a lot of times, Tom, but I mean, there was, there was a number of things that I found with Jordan that I needed changing which we managed to get fixed, I think, that weekend. Well, I think that there was, there was a sense that they were happy to be there. I've come from a team that was used to winning and second wasn't any, of any interest to them at all. Whereas Eddie, you know, his, his team was, he'd fought really hard to get his team into F1 and he was taking every opportunity that came along. But they tended to look at the other teams and think, well, what are they doing? And we, we should do that and then we'll, we'll get there and I kept on trying to explain that when you're in the lead there's no one else to follow you know to lead you have to make it up as as you go along it's make it's making it up out of your own talent and initiative so there was a little bit of debate going on the weekend that weekend at Spa where um, Eddie wanted me to go and do some appearances on the Saturday night and I was saying no we can win this race so we have to stay and we have to go through all the the data and uh, tactics and stuff and uh, there was a little bit of a Kerfuffle, wasn't there already? Because you've got all your crew out there. You've got the whole Jordan team had been coached out there. And I said, listen, they can say can celebrate when we won the race. We can we can go and celebrate together. So there was a little bit of tension on, on the night before, which is always a good thing. Well, as Damon alluded to there, it was a very unusual set of circumstances, Tom, because I thought the end of summer as such and I know what I do. It's not far from Silverstone. So every member of staff was entitled to come. I didn't pay their accommodation. I think I made sure that the bus drove through the night. <laughs> but anyway, we, we gave them cheap seats that they couldn't sell at, um, at Spa. And no, 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 let's be honest. It, it was a great, great day because every member of staff was there to witness our first ever win. And Damon was right, but, you know, Remember, I come from a commercial side and the entrepreneurial financial side. So when I agreed with sponsors and that to turn up and that I will be bringing Damon Hill with me and he will speak for maybe 10 minutes or whatever it is, you know, I expect, and that's part of the contractual obligations of every driver, even to this day. However, we were in a situation where Damon wanted to stay on and he was getting well into the uh, the workings of the car, which was obviously on reflection way and by far the most important thing because the other people would wait. And if we did do the result that we did get, then they would clearly understand that. Mm. Well, anyway, it was, it was great memories, wasn't it? I mean, you know, we were you know, in the thick of it there. Those days, some people often ask me about the fun days. And I think that we always talk about the Formula 3 days. And I remember clearly you being a member of the Rat Pack and um, the Martin Donnelly and Lundell and Perry... Uh, and then, of course, Johnny Herbert came to drive with us. You, it was one of the most fun times I've ever had in my life. Was those your selling it days in Formula Three? And I'm just one of the questions that I've never really ever asked you. Do you see it that way yourself? I can see what you're saying. Yeah, I think there's something that happens when you get to 
to F1, you can't be doing it for the love of it, you know, in some way, can you? You know, I think with the F3 period, you're on your way up, you, you're full of enthusiasm and, uh, and, you know, you party hard as well. So, you know, worked hard and played hard. Eddie, final one from me about the win. How did it change things for you? It was a, a double whammy for me because Michael Schumacher wanted to fight with everybody. He started off by fighting with DC, which was perfect, <laughs> left us alone. And then he came to me and I thought he was going to put his arms around me and say, look, I'm so happy for you. You've won first and second. It's remarkable when we started here all those seven or eight years previously. But no, that's not Michael. Michael wanted to just shout and roar at me. He was swearing at me and I can swear with the best of people. So I started to push him. He pushed me. And he was saying, that's it. You're never going to have my brother next year. I said, it's very simple. Very simple, Michael. It's uh, have a look at the contract, which you're very good at looking at contracts. There's a buyout clause. It's two million quid. Pay me the two million. You can take him wherever you like. And that's what he did. So uh, thanks, Damon. You got me an extra two mil on the side for that. I never even... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Where's my commission? I've been paying oh, your commission God. all my life, for you Christ's come out. sake. <laughs> but that is what happened. He drove for Williams the following year. And the, the stupid thing about it is I took Branson for free and won a couple of races with him. It was ridiculous what was going on at that stage. Yeah, I mean, it was like the, the cork had come out of the bottle, wasn't it? Suddenly we were winning everything. You were almost in contention for the world championship as well, weren't you? At one time, you, uh, you, that would have been a bit hard to swallow for most people, wouldn't it? No, but why not? It was, it was, it was possible in those days. Don't you find it very sad that there's, there's no team that's potentially able to come up into Formula One of their own volition with their own few quid, yeah. grind it out. Uh, you say a few quid. I mean, it's more like a few billion, isn't it? Really. I mean, that's the problem. We've got. Oh yes, but we had nothing when we came in there. And nothing. Three guys, Gary Anderson and two people designed that car, which is still, you know, the 191. For me, I'm biased. I still, still think it's a very pretty car. I want to ask one more question, Eddie, which is with your talent spotting hat on, because you just, you did have an amazing, I think of all the names like Rubens, Barrichello and Fisichella and, and, and Herbert and, and all the talented drivers you've picked on. Hill. Yeah, well, <laughs> we've, been, we've cleared that. We've cleared that one up, Tom. But you know, I was just going to go and say, you're looking at the grid now, the current crop of drivers. Who are the really special drivers there? It goes without saying, obviously, Lewis and Max. But, I mean, beyond that, what, well... Well, no, no, Lewis and Max, you just discount them because they're relatively, I won't say in a class of their own, but I, I do like Norris. I think he, he's very special. Uh, having said that, Pierre Gasly surprises me every time I see him in the car because... He has the ability to do great things, as we saw when he won that race. But, you know, I don't know how good that car, but Franz Tost, who runs the team, used to be as well, you know, Damon, he used to be with Ralph, and he's a wily old character. So I would assume that's a good car. It's difficult to see outside those first two. And, and then personally, I, when I was involved with Malia, uh, I, I was a big fan of Ocon, and we saw how professional I think he drove at the last race. I thought he did a remarkable, there's a lot of pressure there, sure. He got help with Alonso and various other things and the circumstances. However, is he of that style? No, I don't think so. Not yet. There's very few that actually can come up to Max and Lewis's standard. And I think Norris is the one that stands out. I think if we're looking for another world champion in Britain, you know, there was Jensen, there was you, and then there was previous people, obviously, dozens before that but the next lot you'd have to be looking at uh, Nando Norris. Do you think Mick Schumacher is a chip off the old block? 
too early to say. I haven't seen really enough. I saw him capitulate too much in, in Hungary. I thought, yes, I don't know how bad that car is, but it has to be pretty grim if he gave in the way he did give in to some of the moves. And, and he's learning. And sometimes it takes a little bit of time. But his dad, he didn't have to wait any time. But to be fair, I think Jordan was a good car at that time. Certainly was. Well, Eddie, it's been wonderful to get your thoughts. Now, have you got another five minutes or so? Because we have a section on the show called... Ask Damon. Oh, my God. <laughs> so people, people send in voice messages, Eddie, and uh, our listeners, and they come from all over the world, and they ask me um, some random questions, but usually they're, they're interesting, insightful questions that um, I'd like to hear how you cope with some of these questions. Okay. Am I allowed to ask a question? You, why not? Why not? Right. Let's fire away. Hey, Damon. Rex here. In my area of engineering being packaging production, I find myself giving reassurance to staff operating these lines by doing what we call psychological adjustments. This is where we give the impression that we've made adjustments on the machine and they in return feel better about how it's running. So do you believe this strategy may have been used on you at some point? Can you recall a time where you've asked for adjustments on like the balance of your race car, but felt that perhaps you'd been psychologically adjusted? If so, did you call it out? Keen to know. Cheers, big boy. Big boy. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Right, <laughs> Hello, so, big boy. <laughs> so, Eddie, did you get that question? Uh, Rex is asking whether or not uh, you use kind of psychology on, on drivers. You know, the kind of thing where you say, well, we just fixed the rear roll bar when you haven't touched it at all, you know, and you, you send him out for another. Or we've given you uh, extra downforce or, you know, or tons, of, tons more horsepower, and you haven't actually done it at all. You've just tried to make it feel good. There's two reasons. The answer to that is yes, of course you do that on a regular basis. When we were stuck and I didn't have enough money to have uh, enough engineers, I used to be given the job to engineer and I'd always dive into the cockpit, put my head around a guy just in the middle of Formula 3 qualifying. And I remember Jean Alessi doing the, the French Grand Prix or the French Formula 3 Grand Prix in Ricard. And I said, look, I've just put another half inch on the roll bar in the back and I've just put another couple of pounds with a toe in or whatever it was. You will absolutely crunch it. I did absolutely nothing, never changed a thing. And he went out and he went a half a second quicker. And I'm trying to say, what is the matter with these guys? They're just headbangers. All they need is their head stroking. And you're the same, Damon. You just need your head massage because you're full. All racing drivers are full of crap. And we know that because they just... It's mind over matter. What happens in a crash when you lose the front wing? They go quicker. It's a fact of life. People adapt and adjust to the given set of circumstances. But when they come in, they're all full of data this and data that. And oh my God, racing drivers, I can't cope with them. Eddie, you were once a racing driver, as you know. And you know, <laughs> so you know, you probably <laughs> might be judging every racing driver by your own standards. Do you, do you ever consider that? Well, I was never that good, to be fair. Uh, and, you know, the great thing I will say to a great friend of all of ours, it was Nicky Lauda. He said to me, Eddie, you're far better with numbers and figures financially and far better off commercially and marketing. Uh, I'd, I'd give up this racing driver. This is when I, I was lucky enough to be in that junior Marlborough team. So I owe him a lot, but you're absolutely right. Racing drivers generally are fragile characters, like most sports people. And they need things and certain things said to them and spoken to them uh, about how they can find that extra bit of confidence. But it works. 
anyone who believes that psychology does not play a fairly significant role in any sport is crackers. It does, and it certainly does in Formula One. Yeah, there's a great there's a great story in the Uppity film, uh, which is Willie T. Ribs, when he talks about qualifying for Indy. And, you, you, you know, to go 220, 30 mile an hour around Indy, you need some courage. And sometimes the driver has a mental barrier. And so his the team that he was driving for, he had one more go to qualify for the Indy 500. And the, the guy brings out these tires. He said, listen, I've been saving these tires all week. They're the magic tires. <laughs> <laughs> he gives him the touch and he gives him the spiel about them having some special magic quality. And he said, you put these on and you just will, you'll get loads more grip. And he went out and he qualified. Of course, there was nothing different about the tires at all. It was the story. But, you know, I think some drivers would like some help sometimes to get them over that psychological barrier, particularly somewhere like Spa, which is um, sort of Spa is dangerous as well, but um, places like Indianapolis, because Sometimes we really are fighting against courage, you know, our own uh, intimidation factor. Damon, are you aware, with hindsight, of a situation that Eddie's just described with Jean Alesi happening to you? I can't think of one, but then, of course, uh, maybe they wouldn't tell me. So how do I know? I've, I, I know there's a couple of times where I thought they're trying to screw me. <laughs> so, well, we've seen what Rex is asking in Formula One this year, haven't we? We saw Hamilton and Bottas swap chassis at the French Grand Prix. We saw Esteban Ocon given a new chassis for the British Grand Prix. What was wrong with the old chassis? Once it's in your head, once it's in your head, that's, that is a problem. That can be a problem. So listen, I'm going to run out of battery here, guys, soon. So I've got one question for Damon that I've been meaning to ask him for a long time. And, and that is, Damon, we were in the second year and... We went to play golf and you said to me, EJ, I'm probably going to quit at the British Grand Prix. And then you changed your mind. What was it, please, if you can recall, what was it that made you change your mind? This is a very long story and your battery will go, definitely will go flat if I have to tell the whole story. But basically, if everyone wants to know, I wanted to retire at the British Grand Prix because that's where I started. That would have been a neat ending. But you held me to my contract, from what I remember, and I couldn't get out no, of it. No, I, I, I wanted you wanted to be out before. <laughs> I wanted you to stop, so I didn't have to pay you. But when you realised I wasn't going to pay you, you decided to continue. There you oh, go. Well, damn. you could have let me go after the British Grand Prix. But anyway, the, people don't want to hear our business issues. Oh no, no, we're quite enjoying it actually. It was so fun, Tom. Yes, because uh, you've asked me to be on this. This is something. Longevity and loyalty is something that's very, very important to a lot of people. But I'm not blowing smoke up Damon's body here, but he was an amazing guy and he has always been an amazing guy. And we gigged together and we concert together and we had a few drinks too many together. But in all the times that I've been doing podcasts and various other things, Damon Hill is an absolute gentleman. I'd do anything for him. Damon. I owe you a lot. Thank you. Likewise, Eddie. You know, uh, very, very close. I know we sound like we we don't get on, but actually we do. <laughs> no, <laughs> we've got to. Please tell everybody we don't. That's the important thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Oh. Well, lovely to see you, Eddie. It's great to have you on the uh, F1 Nation podcast. Thanks very much. I hope you find a charger. Eddie, podcast gold. Thank you very much for your time. Really good to speak to you. Cheers, EJ. Bye.
Really good to hear from EJ. I loved his thoughts on Lando Norris as well. Hard to disagree. I think yeah, Norris, EJ thinking that, yeah, that Norris is the real deal. Anything else we haven't discussed, DH, looking at the Belgian Grand Prix this weekend? So best of the rest. We've sort of done Lewis and Max, haven't we? Who do we think is going to be best of the rest at Spa? Well, I, I'm, I'm keen to see where Ferrari are making progress because they, they kind of, um, this up and down season they've got, they earlier in the year I heard you interviewing with, with Charles and they was, he was saying that they're very much focused on 2022. So, But there's a lot of engine developments they can do. Uh, in the meantime as well so we'll see i mean we've got monza coming up as well so as a pre-monza race bar is also very important so i'm kind of expecting ferrari to have pulled something out of the out of the mire and uh carlos Sainz, uh, as a result of sebastian vettel's disqualification from hungary He's now a four-time podium finisher, but he's only actually stood on the podium twice. <laughs> He'd be keen to actually get on there, wouldn't he? Yeah. So he could actually do it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a, bit of a, that's a bit of a cheat, isn't it? It's a bit of a shame. Yeah. Well, I th- I'm totally with you. I think it'd be fascinating to see what Ferrari do. I think McLaren will be strong. They've got good straight line speed. They've got a, a really good driver in Lando Norris. Daniel Ricciardo still finding his way. This is his 200th Grand Prix, by the way. Who's Lando's? Daniel, no, not Daniel, Daniel, no. I was going to say, the Daniel is two hundred Grand Prix. Yeah, oh my God. When you think that Mark Webber only did two hundred and thirteen, I think that um, Daniel Ricciardo will be having spent the last two weeks thinking, what the hell has he got to do to get um, what he needs out of this McLaren? So uh, I don't expect him to have been resting too much. Do you think he needed the break just to step away, or do you think he he would love to have just carried on racing and chipping away at it? I wouldn't have been able to rest if I'd been trying to work out what's missing. I think I would have spent that whole two weeks uh, working on that. So we'll see where he's at when he comes to Spa. Well, I think Lewis Hamilton is going to get win number 100 this weekend. Yes, it's 100, 100 Grand Prix victories if he can do it. But he will do it. But I mean, not, not necessarily at Spa, but he, he's going to get there to 100. That is mind-blowing stuff absolutely mind-blowing so who's your money on if i i think it's going to be lewis how about you yeah you think lewis okay okay i think um yeah we haven't talked about whether or not i was going to say valtteri maybe valtteri could could do one last hurrah (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to think of an alternative to lewis hamilton and it's very difficult max verstappen it's going to be one of those two isn't it so i'll take max go on you've got lewis gosh we're original yeah (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is it. Another week of F1 Nation. It's good to be back on the horse, Damon. It really is. I'm enjoying these chats we have, Tom. It's been, uh, yeah. been very Even when Eddie uplifting. Jordan's on the show. <laughs> well, especially, I mean, Eddie, I mean, definitely the spice of life there. Yeah, great chat. Great time. Hope that, that the, um, the listeners got something from that. Hey, Damon, of the three teams you race for in Formula One, where were you happiest? Or is that just directly linked to, to where you were winning races? Most races. I think it has to be. I mean, uh, no disrespect to Eddie. Uh, I, I was at the end of my career when I went to, to Eddie, so it was a little bit more tricky. But um, the happiest has was Williams. You know, it was it was where I started and the people I knew and, and the, the good times and the bad times we had together there. So, yeah, definitely Williams was my home. Uh, if, I, if you can ever have a home in Formula One, home is where the heart is. Yeah. So, Tom, was this an F1 Nation podcast? with F1 in association with Audioboom. Something like that. 
and we'll be back next week with Natalie. Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs> <laughs>